As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. We haven't talked about it in a few weeks, but crypto, price aside, there's always volatility. It's clearly not slowing down at all. <laughs> I feel like we have been talking about crypto over the past few weeks, but I guess I guess we haven't on the podcast. We've written about it on the Odd Lots site. There's still a lot going on. I mean, like, Every day, it seems there's a new investment in the space. People are getting more and more excited about DeFi. Uh, these random tokens keep taking off at the same time. Um, everyone's talking about NFTs. The list goes on. Right. You know what I feel like with crypto? And it's funny, like I joke, you know, it's kind of half true. We haven't been talking about it lately. I think I guess the issue is if you I feel like if you go three weeks without having a crypto episode of the podcast, or if I sort of tune out of crypto for a few weeks, because say I'm interested in supply chains or lumber or inflation or something, then when I try to tune back in, I'm like, what the heck just happened? Because things, Everything's the narratives changed. changed so fast. And the new story of the new coin that people are into, it's changed so fast that I feel like I'm totally behind. So three weeks yeah. in the crypto space feels like three months or a year. Yeah, it's sort of like a dog years type phenomenon, right? Like crypto just seems to be moving faster than everyone else. Yeah. So anyway, uh, let's. I want to just get right into it. I'm very excited. Um, there's a long time by crypto standards VC firm or investment firm called Paradigm. If you say the name Paradigm to people like in crypto circles, it's like this like hushed uh, tone because like there's such reverence <laughs> for this firm Everyone respects this firm, and they've recently raised the biggest uh, crypto, I think VC is the right word, term, but the biggest crypto investment fund as of now. And today we're recording this November 30th. Who knows? The record's probably going to be broken in about three days. But they've raised the biggest fund ever to invest in uh, in the space of $2.5 billion. And we are going to uh, talk to one of their co-founders about what they plan to do. Great. Can't wait. I'm very excited. I want to bring in Matt Wong. He is the co-founder and managing partner at Paradigm. Matt, thank you so much for coming on Odd Lots. Hi, Joe. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So like I said in the intro, I feel like when I've been in crypto circles or hanging out with crypto people and like you bring up Paradigm, people are like, oh, yeah, they're legit. Like there's a lot of like kind of fakers in the space 
We all sort of know that. And there's a lot of people that just arrived on the scene five minutes ago. But before we talk about this new fund, why don't you talk about uh, where did Paradigm come from? What is its background and history? And what's its uh, sort of basic story? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, very grateful that that's what people are saying about us. <laughs> Look, I think Paradigm started from a pretty simple place. My co-founder, um, whose name is Fred Ersom, who had previously co-founded Coinbase, and I were longtime acquaintances and friends. Back in 2017, when I was, I like to say, a boring venture capitalist at Sequoia, uh, focused on all kinds of different technology investing and started to spend a lot more time in the crypto space, we would you know, meet up often and, and consider new investments. And one of our observations at the time, well, actually, there were two. The first was, and you know, Fred gained this early, but a very, very deep conviction that what was enabled by crypto was likely to be one of the most impactful sort of spaces to be spending time in over the next 10 years. And we'd already seen Bitcoin as a digital monetary asset grow from you know, effectively zero to hundreds of billions. We started to right. see the early days of DeFi take off on top of Ethereum. And so it was just very clear to us that this was the future. And yet, when you looked at the traditional tech investing establishment, I think it was very underrated. In fact, most very smart and well-meaning people, often when they take a first look at crypto, especially back then, you know, they couldn't help but come away with a sense that you know, maybe there wasn't so much substance. It was, you know, there were dog coins and cat coins, and it, it was sort of, what, <laughs> what is the point of all this? And, and yet, when we spent time on the front lines with some of the protocol developers and the teams building real, you know, hard technology in the space, we just have a, had a totally different view. So, so it was sort of born out of that conviction in crypto. And then, you know, se somewhat separately, we looked around and, you know, I would talk to Fred. You know, he had co-founded Coinbase in 2012. Sort of if you were starting another crypto project today, is there another investor that you would be really excited to work with? And I think the answer for both of us at that point in time was no. And so Paradigm really came from us kind of building the investment firm that we would have wanted as entrepreneurs. Hmm. And to us, one of the biggest parts of that is how native we are and our team is to the technology. And I think this is a general pattern you see across technology waves where some new platform exists, whether it's mobile phones or the internet or crypto. And it's very easy to apply kind of old analogies to the new medium. Right. And yet it turns out that some of the most important companies or innovations that come out of a, a particular wave end up being deeply native to it. And so that was kind of our aspiration around paradigm is sort of getting very close to the metal technically and being able to help support and guide the people building this future. So I want to go back to something you said. What exactly, in your opinion, does crypto 
enable. And this kind of gets to the tension that you were describing with some other VCs. They don't see that much value in it. You know, critics have described blockchain at various points in time as a solution in search of a problem. Uh, We've talked on the show about how a lot of DeFi technology seems to be focused on more DeFi. So it's sort of, you know, trading coins or tokens all the way down. But what is it that you see? Give us the elevator pitch. Sure. I think at the very highest level, we're seeing crypto disrupt in several stages. The first was this idea of Bitcoin as digital money. And, you know, looking into the history of Bitcoin, I think a similar dynamic was always present, which was, is Bitcoin distinguishable from tulips? You know, is it tulips or is it, you know, the next digital monetary standard? And one observation would be like when you talk to people in developed countries, they often don't see the point of Bitcoin. and. When you talk to people in developing countries, it almost clicks immediately, whether it's countries in LATAM or countries like China and Russia, where perhaps the rule of law or uh, currency stability is less taken for granted. And so there is a form of dollar privilege in, in a lot of ways around Bitcoin. So I think that is the first category, not to be underrated, I think that could be tremendously powerful for the world as it progresses. The second is, which is quite a natural extension of digital money, is this idea of decentralized finance. Now that you have digitally native assets, beyond just sending them back and forth or holding them, you can now do much more complex things with them and program them. And I think one thing that's unique about DeFi is the protocol can encode certain rules that you can trust will continue to be the case several years from now. In a lot of ways, it's much like, you know, in the, in the country governance context, the idea of strong property rights. Strong property rights enables an economy to form in a way that's truly long-term. People can build businesses and make decisions knowing that there will be stability over many years or decades. And similarly around DeFi, the idea that say, a decentralized exchange protocol like Uniswap might continue operating exactly the way it's operating today, 10 years from now or 20 years from now, really enables other people who might want to plug into that protocol or build on top of it to do so. Um, So I think that digital commitment is is sort of a key part of what these blockchains Mm. enable. And then finally, I think now that DeFi has really scaled... I think we're seeing, especially over the past year, cryptocurrencies and crypto protocols broaden in the sort of types of industries that they can touch. And, you know, this year we've seen the rise of NFTs and the notions of digital art. Crypto gaming has been become really popular. And so I think we'll see crypto broaden to touch many, many different parts of the modern Internet. So let's talk about this fund. As I mentioned, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, you announced it, a $2.5 billion fund, which as of now is the biggest crypto fund that's been raised. What do you see as the big opportunities? I mean, you talked in sort of broad categories. DeFi, that's very broad now. It means a lot of things. NFT, the sort of NFTs, 
gaming, sort of like certain culture things. What specifically do you see as the uh, you know the big opportunity sets you're going to go after uh, with this fund with this money? You know, back to when we started Paradigm in 2018, we had a lot of conviction about the progression of crypto over the coming decade, and we spent a lot of the early years investing across DeFi and. Um, you know, various other areas. I think one thing that's become very notable over the past year is this the rise of what I think the industry is terming Web3, this notion of blockchains as a way to build for many different other categories of the internet. You know, stepping back from the specific opportunities, one thing that's particularly notable to us and we pay a lot of attention to is kind of the talent flows into the industry. When we started in 2018, um, it was, you know, crypto is mostly a ghost town. It was people who were present in 2016, 2017, who, you know, despite the, the bear market, were continuing to build. Today, it's become much more consensus almost that Web3 and crypto might present part of the future for the internet. So we're seeing a lot of interesting engineering and entrepreneurial talent come into the space. And you know, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I do think what we're focused on is sort of the, the long-term potential that's possible and also kind of the short-term signs of quality and, and innovation and following that. Because I think ultimately for any new innovation that's you know, happening at such a primitive level, I think it's always hard to fully predict exactly what's going to happen whether it's like the internet itself or, you know, the advent of electricity or something, I think you know, the applications eventually surprise us. And so we're more focused on keeping our ear to the ground, understanding the tech deeply and spending time where the builders are spending time. Hmm. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how do you actually go about investing in a crypto business if you find one that you like? Because, I mean, there are multiple ways to do this, but I, I guess the, the two big ones would be, you know, you just buy a stake in a crypto business, sort of the old-fashioned venture capitalist way, or you could buy the project's token, and maybe that comes with some 
sort of governance, say, via a DAO or something like that. How do, how do you sort of weigh those options? Yes, it's a very fascinating question. And I think it's, you know, as a whole, somewhat an open one for the industry, which is, you know, for hundreds of years, even, we've had this very well-established and evolved form of kind of coordinating human activity around corporations or LLCs and having sort of investors and outside folks participate in that. And now all of a sudden we have the ability to kind of store the cap table or the you know, record of value on the blockchain in a sort of trustless, immutable way that is equivalently good in various ways. And so there's sort of a question, which is a better fit for the crypto startup of today? And I think depending on the startup, the answer could be different. Sort of in practice, we're often investing at the earliest stages before any digital token might exist. And we do that through corporate entities as a way to kind of preserve optionality for the way that the project might ultimately want to distribute the record of participation. You sort of anticipated a question that I was going to ask, but I want to talk about there's something interesting. And I think one of the reasons that people do have this reverence for Paradigm specifically is because it's clear that you have a lot of like technical talent. And I think like VCs always like they love to blog and they love to opine. They do these like big tweet threads about how like, you know, the future of work is going to change and stuff like that. And, you know, they all sort of like want to be writers or something. But I feel like Paradigm is unique. Like if you look on your blog, like there's a lot of like technical stuff and you have colleagues who are literally inventing new financial products all the time. Like I'm looking at your blog and one of your colleagues, Dave White, like introduced a new type of like futures idea that could be connected to NFTs. And you have another like um, another colleague who I think is pseudonymous, who like frequently like writes about like finding hacks and stuff like that, or like sort of uh, finding exploits in a uh, token before they're discovered. And so I'm curious, like, it sounds like the, the strategy is having your ears close to the ground, knowing the tech deeply, because you don't necessarily know where it's going, like nobody really does, but you know where the talent is going. Talk about this, like how much of a moat you see that for Paradigm, the idea of like having like deep technical people working for the fund itself, as opposed to just being like money people. So first of all, I, I would sort of acknowledge that I don't think this is what most investment firms look like. And certainly when we were starting out, there's always this temptation of, you know, what have other people done and, you know, what have successful investment firms throughout history done? There's always wisdom and lessons to be gleaned there, but we were very focused on just trying to think from first principles, like if we were an entrepreneur building a new crypto startup, who would we want around the table? Is it possible for an investment firm such as ours to be able to add value in a way that was really meaningful? You know, investors can always write tweet threads, but we, we thought we should go further and, you know, be able to code alongside the, the companies and, you know, audit their code, et cetera. I think, you know, that's clearly very valuable on a practical level. And we're, continuing to explore other ways to you know, lean into that. I think also at an abstract level, you know, one of the potential promises of crypto is 
this notion of digitizing more and more of our institutions and our companies and our infrastructure into these sort of protocolized forms. And if you envision sort of a, a future state in which more and more of our economy is running on crypto rails, then it seems almost inevitable that you know, having deeply technical people is a really important part of participating in that. And so just generally and philosophically, we feel like technical expertise must be one of the core parts of what we do at Paradigm. So in addition to technical expertise, there was something that you tweeted recently where you asked people, um, you know, if if they're good at memes and they want to work at Paradigm, could they get in <laughs> touch? Like, is that... Is that a, this is a Tra- job requirement? Tracy is good at memes, so she sort of yeah. Yes, we should memes. talk. We should. She's talk. thinking about going from the media, <laughs> the media to crypto pipeline here. <laughs> is this a, a job requirement for the crypto space now? Like you have to be able to deal in memes and ideas, given that you know Joe kind of touched on this in the intro, but like given that a lot of what's happening in the space seems to be driven by different narratives, and those are shifting all the time. You know, there's, again, both this practical element of, I think, a lot of modern marketing, whether it is for investment firms or companies, occurs through sort of the medium of Twitter and memes and memes drive culture in a lot of ways. And so I think that skill is is very useful. I think it, you know, there's a whole world that operates on crypto Twitter, as, as you both know from following it. It's almost a parallel universe to what's happening in the real world. And if you aren't on crypto Twitter and aren't sort of one of these very online people who's following what's happening, you're sort of not up to date on the latest in the culture or the substance of what's happening in crypto. So I think there's another element there that's really important. And then finally, I think if you think about you know the hardest problem for every upstart, whether it's us at Paradigm or one of the companies or projects we're backing, is sort of assembling a really talented group of people to work on a single problem for a long period of time. And I think that's ultimately what it takes to build something really great and special. And in a lot of ways, someone like Elon Musk is a huge part of his success is his ability to attract sort of all the best people who want to work on rockets at at this one rocket company. If you think about the role of memes and marketing in that effort, I think, you know, memes are sort of the new way in which one can build a narrative around a vision. It could be something silly like, you know, a dog coin, or it could be something, you know, serious and important like rockets and everything in between. And so I think, you know, memes are all good and fun and we have you know, a great internal channel where everyone's sharing memes. But I think there's also something deeply powerful about, you know, their role and the way they're you know, sort of shaping attention and directing energy towards certain projects uh, that people get excited about. So I want to ask, you know, you mentioned that sort of like one of the interesting properties of crypto is this sort of predictability. And you mentioned that there's, you know, Uniswap, and I think uh, that's a paradigm investment. You're an investor in Uniswap. You know, that code may live on in its current form for 10 or maybe 100 years. And so someone could build on top of that code and build something new and have some expectation that that is not going to change. 
when you think about investing, to what extent do you think about different portfolio investments or different tokens or different DAOs that you invest in as somewhat being like like uh, the network effects within your own companies, uh, within paradigm companies or within paradigm investments? I mean, people in traditional tech, they always talk about network effects, but it's sort of com- uh, confined. There's like Facebook's network uh, effect or Twitter, et cetera. To what extent do you think about sort of compounding network effects of different tokens you invest in that in some way build or enhance another company or token within your family? It's a great question. And I think it's present in the dynamics of the portfolio, which is if we invest in protocols that are providing a great value to the ecosystem and its users, then it often makes a lot of sense for those protocols to start interoperating or building on top of each other. And so that's definitely a dynamic that we'd love to encourage and and do think about. I think there is actually a a nice sort of pre-existing analogy to that effect, where if you look at a incubator like Y Combinator, it's sort of a very common element that new Y Combinator startups, often their first customers or first hundred customers are actually like other Y Combinator Mm. startups. And I think that's been a powerful flywheel for that community overall. And certainly we do hope that you know, if we're doing our jobs right, which is you know, finding and supporting some of the most ambitious and special crypto entrepreneurs around the world, uh, that there'll be a lot of benefits to them being in that same community and being able to, to work together. I have a slightly theoretical question, but you know, one of the benefits or one of the sort of selling points for crypto has at various times been described as the manufacturing of artificial scarcity. So something like Bitcoin, there is a limited amount, only a certain number of coins are ever going to be mined. And so there's something valuable about them. The same thing sort of for NFTs, you know, if you collect a certain type of art or pieces from one artist in particular, there's a limited amount. But One of the things I sometimes wonder about is with all the attention on crypto at the moment and all the money flooding into the space, does the artificial scarcity benefit or or case get sort of eroded because you just see more and more projects, you know, more tokens, more coins, more NFTs, and people are just sort of flitting from one thing to the next such that a market never actually an individual market might get scarce, but crypto as a total is just multiplying. You know, perhaps the, the core underlying question is this one of, with an oversupply of capital, is that kind of efficient in terms of driving towards the innovation that you know, crypto has the potential to achieve? And at least we think about it in these terms in which you know, I think when markets get overheated, you think of investing as sort of a capital allocation and, you know, function for sort of which experiments are worthy of running. And once they start working, which ones are worth supporting more? And in this environment in which capital is abundant, I think that sort of selection function is probably a bit weaker. And that does make it very hard as an investor or an engineer or an entrepreneur to kind of know what to pay attention to. And there's certainly this, this dynamic of the flavor of the week 
you know, we, we often remark internally that in some ways there were elements to miss about the bear market of 2018 because with nobody paying attention and not that much capital around, it was actually easier to get work done. People made more progress and the people who were building were really committed because they were doing it even though it was really not cool and, uh, you know, people made fun of them for doing it. So I think we are at the other end of, of the spectrum now and the pendulum has swung. It's a great time to be a crypto investor and entrepreneur and there's a lot of opportunity, but I also think there's, there's a lot of signal to noise to, to work through. Speaking of um, the other end of the pendulum, and I want to get your take on something. One of the things that gets discussed, I don't think particularly loudly in crypto Twitter or crypto generally, but it's definitely discussed, is the huge gap that people sometimes cite between how coins are valued when they're offered up privately versus when those same token projects become ultimately listed. So there may be some sort of crypto thing, but it's pre-token and then the token becomes available on the decentralized exchanges or on you know, FTX or Binance and people are like, oh, 10 Xs. A, is that the case that there, in your view right now, that there is still this huge gap between private valuations and then what uh, how coins are valued once they're sort of listed? And B, you, know, you talked about at the very beginning or early on, you want Paradigm to be a place that if I were, say, uh, raising money for a you know some new token offering, I would want to go to you. And so how much is it is just sort of like that access to deal flow? You want the first look. You want people to say, I want Paradigm money as opposed to, you know, I want to name another one, but as opposed to some other fund money. How important is that sort of like early stage investment in sort of like where you see delivering returns? Yeah, I think crypto markets have always been sometimes a puzzle on the valuation side. I think, you know, relative to other markets, and I won't name specific names, but I think there are really substantive, credible projects that are maybe worthy of what they're worth. And there are others that may be less so. And I think there's maybe not as much of a forcing function in crypto markets around that. But I think to your point on, you know, the stage of getting involved, we do aspire to get involved as early as possible. That's in part because we believe that we've built a team that can help from the earliest days. And especially when you're building a protocol-related project, so much of getting a protocol right is sort of the initial protocol you launch with. In contrast to, say, a website or a mobile app that you're updating every day or every week, protocols are much less frequent in terms of upgrade cycle. And so there's a lot of importance, we believe, in, in getting things right up front. And so we'd aspire to, to get involved from the earliest days. That being said, we're, we're humble about the fact that there's going to be plenty of great projects that we'll miss. And we, we love participating down the line, too, if, if that's when it makes sense. So at the other end of getting in early is, um, you know, actually getting out and the exit process um, for companies. And I'm curious what that looks like for crypto businesses. So, you know, Coinbase went public, but I don't think we've seen many other crypto entities that have done the same. 
And part of me gets the sense that a lot of them wouldn't want to. There's sort of a tension between disrupting the existing world of finance, you know, the traditional listing process, and what they're trying to do in various ways with crypto and and blockchain. It seems like listing might be sort of contradictory. So how do you see the exits um, for your investments? Sure. So first, we we tend not to think too much about that because we do, you know, we're only three years into the life of Paradigm and we believe a lot of the best companies or projects will be 10-year or more journeys. But in terms of your structural question, I think it sort of gets back to the question earlier about tokens versus equity. There are certain types of crypto businesses that are, at least today, a much better fit for the traditional you know, C-Corp model. Coinbase being an example, or you know, exchanges globally around the world, software as a service businesses that might be, you know, building software for crypto companies, as two examples. And so I think a lot of those businesses will probably take a, a more traditional IPO path, and you know, maybe the distinction is that they're regular businesses and generate, you know, re- revenue in a normal way. They just happen to serve the crypto market. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's sort of the crypto protocols that you know have tokens from early on. And I would guess you're probably right that you know a lot of those protocols probably don't take the traditional IPO path in the long run. So I, I just want to sort of crystallize these different options with an actual example. So if you, if you had the option of investing in Solana the token or the coin versus investing in Solana as like a business, which would be the better long-term investment in your view? Well, so maybe apologies for resisting this particular example, but maybe let me share, (laughs) maybe let me share sort of protocols like Solana, which I would categorize as sort of layer one protocols that are sort of building a full blockchain, have sort of a core monetary unit at their center. I think those types of investments, we believe the, ultimately the monetary unit or the unit of account in Solana's case, Sol, or in Ethereum's case, Ether, those are the sort of most natural place for value to accrue in the long run relative to a corporate structure that might exist. And in, in a lot of ways, the corporate structure may be sort of somewhat orthogonal in that it's maybe a labs entity or something else that's responsible for the development of the core protocol, but maybe other things around the ecosystem, but not necessarily um, a core revenue driver. Right. A lot of these are non, not-for-profit foundations, right? That's right. That's right. And I think the, the ecosystem is sort of still exploring best practices on exactly how to structure all this stuff, but that's right. And then on the flip side, you know, we're Investors in in a company that provides you know accounting software or tax software called Taxbit, and that's an example where, besides the fact that it serves the crypto industry, it looks very much like a traditional software as a service company.
As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So you mentioned that right now kind of feels like the other end of the pendulum from 2018. And that was like the sort of the the crypto winter, as it was called. And we are definitely not, we are in, you know, long crypto summer. Do you ever look at things that are going on right now, whether it's like the millionth fork of Ohm, you know, some sort of crazy, uh, you know, projects that even the adherents joke about, like they blatantly call them Ponzi's in many cases, or say, you know, the 20th version of a coin that has a puppy in Elon Musk's name. Do you ever like worry about like a sort of like hot money or maybe a better term that I think about is like, cynical money, which is like projects that are clearly, I don't know, do not seem to be built with some sort of longer vision other than like capitalizing and trying to make money right now. Do you worry that that has corrosive effects on the space? Or is that just like, or do you not see it that way? And that's just like, some people are having fun and throwing things against the wall. And there's no reason to view it cynically. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, on one level, it it, it just is. It's It's neither good or bad it's it's all part of a whole and i think you know would it be better if more labor and capital and attention was focused on really great long-term innovative projects i think yes and then sort of any market that attracts any market that starts to do well and attracts other participants I think ends up with these sorts of you know speculative dynamics and I think they're somewhat inseparable and so you know it's hard to to sort of critique one part of it w- without thinking about the broader whole. I do think we'll see cyclical effects over time as a result because to your point and you know I love that you're following the 20th ohm fork but you know eventually people probably tire of the ohm forks and so there's sort of attention and interest that can exhaust <laughs> but you know ultimately i think crypto as a whole feels very robust relative to you know 2 3 years ago there's a guy in my dms every week who i really like personally i actually i don't know who he is i don't even know if it's a guy and he's like when are you doing an ohm episode when are you doing an ohm episode i'm like we're not doing an ohm episode we're not doing an episode on something that you blatantly joke of as a Ponzi. But anyway, sorry, keep going. Anyway, I just, I get a kick out of that whole thing. Well, no, that's actually fascinating because I think the, you know, to your point, there's sort of like a decentralized signal filter, right? So, you know, Bloomberg is not going to cover Ohm and Bloomberg is going to focus on 
you know, more substantive long-term projects. And I think that's generally speaking a, a, a decent place to go. Although maybe I'm like, you know, that's going to really come back to haunt me. And when Ohm is truly the sort of like the unbacked stable coin of the internet, I'll feel like the person who dismissed all the Bitcoin pitches in my <laughs> inbox from 2010 and 2011. That's right. You should do an Ohm episode as insurance then. <laughs> just as insurance, just in case it's the currency of the future. All right. I guess this is kind of a related question, but just in terms of evaluating use cases for different um, coins or technologies, like so much of it right now depends on their ability to scale up. Um, and I, I know this is something that you've been watching quite closely when it comes to Ethereum, but like how how are those efforts going in, in your view? And what are the challenges of... Um, scaling up or making the networks more efficient for a lot of those coins? Because this is going to be the thing that, you know, drives DeFi expansion. So if the underlying tech isn't working that smooth, that would seem to be a problem. I think maybe it's worth elucidating sort of why there is this core issue, which is Hmm. part of what blockchains do is to ensure that there's sort of this immutable record of what happened, you know, transactions are basically repeated on a lot of different machines in a consensus process. And that's inherently going to be more costly and less efficient than sort of traditional internet services. And I think when you think about that process, there's a couple different ways of solving it. One way is to sort of batch transactions together and either make proofs about them or, you know, optimistically accept them and accept fraud proofs about them. And that's a type of scaling solution that's emerging around Ethereum called rollups. Another approach is to think about the hardware that you're using to run these and be able to run them in larger and better hardware. I would say right now we're at a phase in the ecosystem where basically every potential solution is being explored. And I think that's great for the ecosystem overall. And relative to two or three years ago, we're a lot further along. There's optimistic rollups and zero-knowledge rollups, both in production around Ethereum. There's other layer ones like Solana, which are more scalable. And so we're sort of seeing this play out in real time. And I would guess another couple of years from now, scaling will still be an issue, but it'll no longer feel as existential or uncertain. The sort of fog of war will have lifted and we'll have much more clarity on sort of the specific paths and directions that are going to work. So I want to ask you a question about this sort of, you know, we've been talking about crypto, the term Web 3.0 has sort of become synonymous. And I think like, you know, people like here, Web 3.0, there's this debate and this was, this is actually another thing that got discussed recently on crypto Twitter recently, which is, will the services that we've come to associate with like the last iteration of the web, web 2.0, will they all become sort of like on blockchain? And so the classic example is like, oh, will there be an Uber on the blockchain where instead of an Uber Inc, like a company that there is like some sort of like decentralized protocol that routes drivers and they collect a token and it's sort of, and the, uh, every passenger and driver gets some sort of reputation score we no longer need like a sort of like corporate middleman or something like that or Twitter or could could that entirely exist on a blockchain without an LLC as we know it and i'm curious you know you've kind of been a little bit reluctant to sort of 
elucidate specifically the investment idea. But what do you think about that? Like, are, are all these sort of Web 2.0 things, in your view, going to get recreated on chain? Or do you think all those are sort of more or less exist in their current form? And what happens on Web 3.0 would just be something novel that we can't really anticipate yet? I think there's sort of two thoughts on this. The first is that we tend to think that it's much easier for the blockchain to kind of reason about things that are on the blockchain, or at least digital, and sort of accessible via Oracle or some other mechanism. And so the example of Uber on the blockchain, you know, I would guess that that's really far off if it ever happens. In contrast, I think gaming is a great example where you know, most games aren't fully on-chain, but the idea of putting game items or game currency on-chain is a very natural one. And we're likely to see that happen much sooner. So that would be one general principle we think about is sort of how blockchain or crypto native is the application or how digitally native is it. I think the second thing we think about is, you know, it's always easy to think in analogies like Facebook on the blockchain, Uber on the blockchain, I think we tend to have the view that the most compelling applications will be kind of uniquely enabled by the new technology. You wouldn't have been able to build it without it. And so, you know, the example with the internet might be something like you could put the New York Times or Bloomberg online, but you couldn't have done Wikipedia before the internet. And I think that was, you know, ultimately much more interesting, uh, although not a huge business. In the crypto world, I think there's sort of this example of Uniswap of the, the idea of like this on-chain, always available sort of permissionless market maker was not possible before. And now it's, it's suddenly possible because you know, sort of Ethereum is, is kind of live all the time. And so that's what we're really looking for at Paradigm is sort of these uniquely enabled applications that wouldn't have been possible before. Can you give us an example, like a really concrete example of something that's exciting you in the space right now? Like, what is it that, that you're most like optimistic about or enthusiastic about? I think the, the idea of, and I've already sort of already mentioned it, but the idea of digital games adopting blockchains, I think is just a really compelling area, both because this is a behavior that's already sort of decades old, the idea of placing value in digital items, potentially trading them. And it's a really natural fit for what you know, crypto and blockchain enables, which is true digital property rights. And so, you know, imagine the person who's maybe playing World of Warcraft for 10 hours a day and really investing time, energy, money into their digital life effectively in this game. And yet most of the value is purely subject to the platform. One analogy we think about is you know, a lot of these digital worlds, whether it's games or, you know, Facebook's metaverse or you know, digital crypto systems, you're sort of moving to a new country in a lot of ways and sort of adopting the rules of this new country. And it turns out that today, most of those digital systems are 
you know, effectively autocratic in contrast to, you know, what we think of as good governance today more broadly. So I think that's a, a tremendous intersection. And then just very practically, we're seeing the gaming industry really adopt this seriously. All the major large studios, small studios, gaming entrepreneurs from past waves um, are really sort of rushing headfirst because you know, crypto has all, all of a sudden cracked open this you know, creative canvas that I think people are really excited to explore. So I just have one last question, and it's sort of pragmatic, but, you know, two and a half billion dollar raise for this new fund. What is, do you have like a sort of estimated internal guess as to the the length of time that you expect to deploy that over and sort of the cycle of it? So, you know, we sort of, you know, we joked at the beginning, three weeks or three months in crypto, it feels like years. What is the cycle of which uh, you expect to deploy two and a half billion dollars and, uh, you know, how many different projects? Do you have some guess of how far that will uh, how far that will go? Like, what's your what's your goal here? So the top level answer is that we're very focused bottoms up and, you know, not, not trying to dodge the question, but just very genuinely, we're always just trying to find interesting people and projects and back the ones that we get very excited about. And that could be at the really early stage with small checks. It could be at the growth stage with larger checks. I would guess that it's not dissimilar to any other venture capital fund, which might you know, have a deployment period of a couple of years. Well, Matt, it was a, uh, it was a real pleasure uh, to have you on Odd Lots. Really appreciate it. Really a fascinating conversation and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing what you do. Cool. Thanks for the time. Yeah, take care, Matt. Thanks so much, Matt. Cheers. So, Tracy, I found that conversation to be really interesting. And I think the thing that struck me the most, I mean, at the end, what he said to you about, you know, his interest in blockchain gaming is clearly. Mm. But I think like one of the things that struck me most was sort of like how open ended they seem to be or Matt seems to be about where this might go, which is like, we don't really know. It might look totally different. No one could have anticipated Wikipedia prior to the Internet and just this sort of idea of Let's just see what the uh, the talented people are building. Yeah, I think the thing that stood out to me um, was that bit towards the end of the conversation where he was talking about, well, you put all this stuff on the chain and you're building Web 3.0 or Web 3 or whatever. But what you're essentially doing is sort of mo moving from those vertical models of trust where everything you know, was controlled um, by a single entity. Like, I mean, Facebook's a bad example because right. it's going to be starting the metaverse, but like everything's controlled by Facebook, the social network. Yeah. And now you're moving to sort of a more horizontal structure of trust that's enabled by the protocols that might be embedded in a particular yeah. crypto project. Like needless to say, and Probably, I think both of us, you know, still have some, I don't know, crypto, neither of us are like totally like drinking the Kool-Aid crypto converts. And I kind of see myself as somewhere in the middle these days. But I think a lot of the problem that people have with this is they sort of like, oh, like Uber already works fine. 
um, as mm. it is. And it doesn't need to be on a blockchain or Facebook already works fine or Twitter works fine or banking works fine or Robinhood works fine. And it kind of feels like, as he put it, or the way he was thinking about it, it's like, yeah, maybe it's not about solving some obvious problem that already exists. And maybe that's the wrong question, as opposed to what organically emerges out of these new governance structures or property rights structures that we sort of can't conceive of. And so it's like the, yeah, but what is crypto for question? Maybe in a sense, maybe it's the wrong question to be asking at some level. Yeah. Although I kind of feel like with the amount of money that is pouring into the space, you (laughs) would want, you would want to be asking that question. And again, like part of me is very interested to see what comes out of all of this. But the other part of me is thinking, why can't all this money go into, I don't know, some sort of environmental technology or something like that rather than who's making like the most efficient way to move NFTs from one owner to the other. But who knows? Like maybe maybe the uh, the metaverse or Web three or whatever is going to be absolutely amazing, and you know we'll take it all back. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I remember like you sort of made fun of me, like you know, when so we did some of our DeFi. Um, me make fun of you? Yeah. No. Right. That would never happen. When we did some of our like first DeFi like episodes like early in 2021, because I was like, yeah, well, what is the thing that's like getting funded? Yeah. Like, it's great to invent in, uh, invent finance, but like finance has a reason. It's like to fund wh- uh, whaling expeditions and to distribute the risk <laughs> of that. And so it's like, yeah, well, what are the things? And I guess like that is still where I stand on some level. DeFi or crypto finance still seems like it has to like finance something of some use rather than just and i some and also i wonder like you know looking at this in december or november at this point with like all of these own forks many of which like are like (laughs) you know they like call themselves ponzi schemes it's like is this really going in the other direction where it's like these are just blatantly games First of all, I can tell already that we are going to end up doing an episode on OM. And then secondly, I love that all our DeFi episodes always come back to the whaling industry. That's the whole point of finance. Distribute risk from something that has, uh, you know, very unpredictable returns. Yeah. All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest on Twitter, Matt Wong. He's Matt Wong. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening. there. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. 
That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.